Shelby, you submit. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Talbot. Hi. Through the grace of a God that I knew nothing about until you told me about him. Because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works in my life one day at a time with your help. I haven't had a drink of alcohol or any mind-changing or mood-altering chemicals since July 24th, 1968. And for this, I'm as grateful as I'm capable of being. Not nearly as grateful as I ought to be. Because July 24th, 1968 was not the date of my first introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been around a long time. You can look at me and tell I've been somewhere a hell of a long time. Before I get into whatever it is I'm going to do up here, all the other speakers have thanked the committee. And I'm going to do the same thing. But I feel that I'd be aware of the place if I didn't also apologize to the committee and to every one of you. Because my motive for coming out here was not what it should have been. I came because I was hungry and because I was empty. And to show you that I hadn't changed one bit, I still came and let you pick up a tape. <laughs> but I want to thank many of you for the food that you've given me. And I'll go back today taking with me much more than I could ever leave with you. of a crowd the size of this it's awfully hard for a thing like me not to talk far beyond his experience <laughs> the big book simply tells me that I'm supposed to share with you what it was like what happened and what it's like now I know to do this is to simply go back and mentally relive it and try to describe it to you as we walk along. And as some of you know, this is a long trip. <laughs> I hope you don't have a tight schedule to operate on. If you do, you're screwed up to start with, maybe. I started out in a little town. Well, no, it wasn't a town, really. It was a place, I think, where about 90 people went broke and got stranded. <laughs> Nobody would have gone there on purpose. Still wouldn't. I was an only child. 
a foster child of wonderful foster parents. And I'd like to say right here and now that nothing that ever happened to me was their fault. I blamed them for as long as I could. Now, even though this was just a small little, whatever it was, settlement, there were two big fine churches there. But there wasn't money enough in that little community to pay a janitor to go in and sweep up one of them, much less pay a full-time preacher. So every Sunday at our little church, different members of the congregation took turns conducting some type of layman service. There was something that didn't quite ring true about these two churches to me, even though I was just a small child. Over on that side of town, there was a Baptist church, and over here there was a Methodist. And I was always told, for some reason, you don't go over there, because that bunch ain't going to make it. <laughs> and this didn't sound right, because I knew some of that bunch, and it was a hell of a lot nicer than some of this bunch that I had to go with. <laughs> for a long time, when I first came to you, I... Uh, went about saying that I was born an alcoholic and I honestly believed this but then there came a day when I was not real sure and I stopped saying that and for quite a while I went about saying that I became an alcoholic as a result of taking one drink of whiskey but then one day I realized I'm not real sure if this is true either but I have come to honestly believe in the last few years that because of some things that happened to me way, way back, God, as I understand him now, saw the necessity of me becoming an alcoholic in order that I might one day be a human being. Because for many, many years I was not a member of anything, even the human race. And I'll have to tell you some of these things. It begins, I think, with the very first thing that I remember in this life. Sort of like a ballroom spit tune. If you don't get exactly the right range, you just make a hell of a mess. <laughs> the very first thing I remember, it happened late one night, I was four years old. I woke up to a loud argument going on in the room right under me where Mom and Daddy slept. And I heard the word adopted. And I didn't know what that meant. I learned a little later as the argument got louder that it meant I did not belong there. I learned, too, that this man I called Dad was bitterly opposed to my being there. This is what the argument was about. 
he felt that I should be sent back to wherever it was I came from. And I remember my first human emotion. It was stark terror. A fear that literally choked me and I threw up. Something I was to become real, real good at later. <laughs> there was something else that happened. Two things that I think played a large part in what I was to become. They happened when I was seven. I told you about these two little churches and the fact that we didn't have preachers in those days. We had lay ministers. Except in the summertime, by the time everybody's gardens came in, there'd be one of these old boys usually come riding in on a mule, and from, for some reason they always came either from West Virginia or Kentucky, didn't grow them nowhere else. Called them circuit riders. My granddaddy called them something else, but I, I won't go into that. The scene one of these old boys made a pass at Grandma one summer. <laughs> and he ought not have done it. <laughs> For years afterwards, that was known as the summer of the short revival. <laughs> but I remember this particular summer, as I say, I was seven years old and I was playing out in the front yard. And I looked coming up the lane, there was the biggest man I had ever seen in my life. He had to be at least seven feet tall. And I was scared of him. But we didn't grow on that side. And he rode up to where I was and announced that he was a visiting preacher and that he was staying at our house, had nobody invited him. But this was customary. One of these old boys would come in and he'd freeload at somebody's house. And they'd be preaching every night till all the grocers was gone and the collection just cut off to nothing and then it was over till next summer. This particular summer was no different. That first night they was preaching. And they had all this little folks sitting up on the front row where they could watch us. And this old boy, he talked loud and he talked long. He talked for what seemed like hours about God's hate. He didn't once mention the word love. Then he talked for quite a while about something he said God hated more than he did anything else. Something called sin. And right in the middle of this, he shakes his finger right in my face and hollers, You are a sinner. And it scared me, him singling me out in that crowd of folk. Then he talked for I don't know how long about this place he said I was going because I was one of them things. A place called hell. And he told it pretty scary. And when he run down or cut off, he played what they call the invitational hymn. I was the first one up to shake hands with him. Not because of any sudden desire to save my soul. Who saved me as old, I didn't know about that either. And it certainly wasn't because of any love that I felt for this scary something he'd been hollering about for hours. I went up simply because he had scared the living hell out of me. And I mean that literally. Because for weeks afterwards, two, three nights a week, I'd have a nightmare. 
a bad dream and I'd wake up crying and screaming and Mama would have to come get me and put me in bed with them. And in this bad dream, it was always the same thing over and over. In this dream, it would be late at night and outdoors is thundering and lightning and the wind's blowing and the trees are breaking off. And me and all these other little folks in that little church, we huddled together scared to death, waiting for this horrible something from somewhere to come get us and take us to this place called hell. I think it was right along about here that mentally I promised myself if I ever get big enough, that's it with the church. I realize now that this one unfortunate childhood experience separated me from something that no human being can survive on this earth without. That same year, something else was to happen that I think played a large part in what I was to be. I was to start the public school. And I had looked forward to this. I don't think I had any ambition to learn anything. But I had always been a loner, not by choice. We lived in a little farming community and there simply were no other children for me to play with for miles around. And I think this was the only reason that I wanted to go to school, to be with my own kind. I didn't realize that I was different from other people. But I had been horribly burned when I was 18 months old. And at this time in my life, I had not had plastic surgery. I was not to get that until I was 20-some years old. A patient in Walter Reed Hospital for another injury during World War II. But at this particular time, three-fourths of my face was covered with scars. My face was drawn with scar tissue. I couldn't close my eyes. I couldn't close my mouth. I didn't have any ears. These two grafted on. But I didn't know I was different. Nobody had ever told me. And I hadn't noticed. That first day at school, long about the middle of the morning, when they had what we called a little recess, I was late getting out in the playground, and when I got out there, all the other little children in my room, 54 or 55 of them, were already in a big circle holding hands, going round in the ring. When I tried to get in that circle, nobody would turn loose. I kept trying. And finally, one little boy, and he was a little bit bigger than me, he stopped, and this stopped everybody else, and all the attention was focused on me. And he said, and I quote, You scarred-faced son of a bitch, we don't want to play with you. And he spit in my face. I learned two things about me that morning in just a very few seconds. One, that I was different from other people because I looked different. I learned, too, that I had an uncontrollable temper that made me a raving maniac fully capable of killing another human being because I almost killed that little boy. He's 58 years old now, just like me. But from that day to this, he has never spoken above a whisper. 
because his voice box was crushed. When the teacher got out where we were, I was choking him. He was unconscious. She separated us. She asked one question, who hit the first lick? I said, I did. All them other little back boys and girls, they backed me up. <laughs> she sent his little sister after a switch, and she came back a little later with a limb off of some kind of tree. The teacher made a switch out of it on me. Wrote a note to my folks, sent me home, and all the way home I'm thinking, wait till I tell Mama, she'll fix that teacher's wagon. But I think I'd forgotten about that rule we had at our house. Rule that said you get one there, you get two more, and you get back here. Mama read the note and, and sent on about the teacher's wagon, just fixed mine again. <laughs> sent me upstairs to bed, and I laid up there all afternoon thinking, well, wait till the old man gets home. Damn, he'll fix all of them. But I must have cried myself to sleep because when I woke up, the old man was home. He had that belt off and a bedamp for won't get him fixed again. <laughs> Nobody has ever asked me from that day to this why I hit the first leg. It didn't seem to be important to anybody but me. But that day I became a loner by choice. And from that day until 25 years later, when I met you people, I hated every human being that walked the face of this earth, including my own mother and father. Obviously, there was no place for me among other children because I was different. To my twisted way of thinking, it was just as obvious that there was no place for me among grown people because all they did was punish me for being different. So I resigned from the human race. And for the next 25 years, I was capable of feeling absolutely nothing but hate and the most god-awful fear that I, I think a human being could feel. A lot of things happened to me and to other people. Things that there's no way I could ever make amends for. I had to be whipped, of course, two or three times a week and made to go to school. I just didn't want to go where a crowd of people were because when anybody looked at me, I knew what they were seeing and I knew what they were thinking and I just couldn't handle it. Even though I was just seven years old, I had standard equipment that all little country boys had. My granddaddy saw to that. I had my own mule, my own rifle, my own hound dog. And every chance I got, if I caught the folks not looking, I'd take all of my equipment and I'd leave. And I'd be gone for days or weeks, sometimes months, till somebody somewhere would see me and come tell my folks where I was. And on these little excursions, I'd roam the countryside for an area 25, 30 square miles. I slept out in the woods and was never afraid out there. Snakes or any other animals were perfectly all right. It was them damn people that bugged me. When I got hungry, I stole something. 
Nothing was right, nothing was wrong. It was necessary. And if I'd ride up to a farmhouse and there was nobody at home, I'd set the house on fire and I'd burn them out. I'd burn down barns, stables, haystacks, cut fences to let cattle in to destroy crops. These were things that belonged to the parents of those children that had laughed at me the day that little boy called me that name. And this was the only way I knew hitting back. I don't know why hitting back was so important, but it was. And I was shot at a lot of times when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And all that did was make me hate that much more. Then one night I was 13. I was in the house by myself. I'd been told I'd go to a little girl's birthday party. Because I didn't want to go because there'd be a crowd there. Mom and Dad had gone somewhere, and that night, for some reason, I got to thinking about a habit that my old man had every morning, and nobody spoke to him until he had been through this little ritual. He'd come down, go in the kitchen, get him a glass, put a little sugar and water in it, and he'd go in this little room off the breakfast room, and I'd watch him through the crack, pouring something in that glass out of that big brown bottle. He'd drink it and smack his lips like it was something special. Now, I reckon I'd been curious about that closet for a long time. I'd been told I was never to set foot in there. That might have been what done it. That night, I went in that closet. No glass, no sugar, no water. I didn't know how to make anything. I took a full quart of white horse scotch. I opened it and took a whale of a dust cutter, five or six big mouthfuls, and it went back. <laughs> and I got about halfway back upstairs, and God, something wonderful happened. I grew about two feet right now. My hair got all wavy and pretty, and all those scars disappeared. I even had two ears, just like everybody else. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I felt like I belonged. That I didn't have to feel ashamed of being here. And it was a beautiful feeling. I was to spend a lot of years looking in a lot of bottles and a lot of cans and a lot of jugs. Searching for that very same feeling one more time, and I, it just wasn't there. <laughs> I was always about that far from it. Oh, I overshot it to hell and gone, missed it when it went by. <laughs> I know now that I've never in my life been able to take one drink of alcohol and predict with any degree of certainty where I would go or what my behavior pattern would be. Somehow I always seemed to sense that with this, things would change. I realized, too, that what that first drink did for me left me no choice, really, but to go back and get another one, and another one, and another one. 
And I honestly don't know how many trips I made to that closet that night. But I didn't make it to that little gal's birthday party. I woke up or came to next morning about daybreak with the sun shining in my face right out in my old man's front yard. And that won't never a good place to come to. You hear around AA from time to time that you become an alcoholic when you discover that next morning drink. That's exactly when I discovered it was next morning. Because when I woke up, my first thought was not, am I going to get a whip in hell? I knew that was part of the deal last night. My first thought was, can I get through the basement window and down the coal chute and tiptoe up them back steps to that closet and get just one more drink of that beautiful stuff before I get to work? That's exactly the way that morning went. No man might near kill me. <laughs> and I never did find out whether it was for getting drunk or stealing his liquor. Because he had put a padlock on that closet. But you know, even though I was just 13 years old, it took me less than 20 minutes. One afternoon, with one of Mama's hairpins jiggling around in that lock, I opened it. Not because I wanted to be a locksmith. <laughs> but because I was an alcoholic. And that padlock stood between me and something I had to have. My father was a doctor. He owned his own hospital. It was next door to where we lived. He had to move his morning tardy from the house over to the hospital. Put it in the drug room and lock it up in the safe where he kept his narcotics. But you know, even though I was just 13 years old, it took me less than 40 minutes late one night with my head against the door that safe, turning that little knob and feeling them clicks, I opened it. Not because I wanted to be a safe cracker, but because I was an alcoholic. And there was something locked up inside that safe that I had to have. Because without it, I was absolutely nothing. My old man had to quit drinking. <laughs> and a quarter of that flit used to last him from one Christmas till the next, but he had to quit. Because then, just like now, no family likes to admit they've got one. <laughs> and my folks showing sure hell had one. Then it became necessary for me to lie and to cheat and to steal to do a lot of other things that I honestly didn't want to do. And you know the things I'm talking about because you've done them too. And for the very same reason. I did them because I was an alcoholic. I had to do things that when I was 15 years old literally killed my mama. And if there's anybody here this morning that's got something in your memory from back there that's hard to live with, I'd like to share this with you. When I was 15 years old, it had been two years since I'd seen my mama smile. And 
she had a beautiful smile. But I'd seen her cry, because she cried every day. Cried about me. And I remember this particular Sunday afternoon, a day pretty much like today. Sheriff came to our house, came to see my father, but he wasn't there. So he told my little mama that her pride and joy had to be in court next morning to answer charges of dropping disorderly, assault and battery, resisting arrest, and assaulting the police officer. And I remember when the sheriff left, Mama started upstairs and she was crying. She got up just a few steps and she fell. She had a heart attack. She never got well. And I remember the few short weeks that followed when every day in the hospital, Mama loved Emerson's poems. I read poetry to her and read to her from the Bible. And she cried every day. And every day, as long as she could recognize me, she begged me to promise her that I'd never take another drink. And I remember making all those promises. And I remember them. God knows I meant them. You know I meant them because you've made them too. And I couldn't keep mine. And just a short while after she was taken sick, I remember the day she was buried. I didn't sit at the graveside with the rest of the family. I didn't get out the back seat of that car. Because I was so drunk I couldn't stand up. Mama cried that day, too. She cried a lot of days since then. But beautiful people like you have taught me to honestly believe that my little mama's smiling this morning. Because she knows where I am. And she loves the people I'm with. I think my mama loves every one of you. Not just for what you are, but for what you're trying to make out of me. In the 11th verse of the 84th Psalm, it says, For God is a sun and a shield. He shall give grace and glory, and he shall withhold nothing that's good from those who walk uprightly. That's all that little lady ever wanted from me. Just that I'd be a decent human being. And I wanted to, but I couldn't. And I didn't know why. But I've come to believe that my way of living now, one day at a time, walking hand in hand with you as a friend, That every day I do this, I am in my own feeble way making amends to my little mama and to a lot of other people that shouldn't have been hurt by me. This has helped me to live with that. If it'll work for you, I'm glad. 
My junior year in high school, I was suspended. I don't know how many times, and it doesn't really matter. It was for the same thing. Going to school drunk or going to school and getting drunk or being drunk in a school play or in a football game. Early in my senior year, I was expelled from the whole public school system in the state of Virginia. My father sent me to reform school. Three weeks later, they sent me home. You get expelled from a reformatory, you do think you ain't wanted. They said I was a bad influence on them bad influences. I was allowed to graduate from high school, though under somewhat unusual circumstances. They assigned me little lessons to do at home. Things I did back in the third and fourth grade. And every week somebody picked them up and they said they graded them. Well, I know they didn't. They just wanted to make damn sure I never had a reason to come back. But sure enough, shortly after the night when it, all the rest of the graduating class marched up on that stage and got that diploma, I got one through the mail. Not long after that, Dad took me out in the front yard one morning and he said, Boy, I don't know what your trouble is or what you're going to do, Barry, but you're going to do it somewhere else. He said, I want you to get off my place and don't you ever come back. And I remember how much I hated that old man as I arrogantly staggered out of his front yard, telling myself that He'd realized one day that he needed me. My father died a little over three years ago. And if he ever needed me, he was mighty secretive about it. <laughs> that day I left, I went to the only place that was open for a thing like me, a place that we here referred to sometime around AA as Skid Row. Now, I'm what is commonly called in AA a low-bottom drunk, and this doesn't bother me particularly. I'm not proud of it, neither am I ashamed of it anymore. But I honestly wish that we'd stop classifying each other, because I don't think there's that much difference in any of us. I don't think skid row is a matter of geography. I visited a friend of mine in AA who came in about the same time I did. We went into the ministry after he found a God of his understanding. And while at his home that weekend, I looked up the definition of the word hell in an ecclesiastical dictionary that he had. And it said simply complete separation from both God and man. No, we're not too different. It doesn't matter, really, if you drank Solox with me down under the bridge or if you sipped them fancy things that you did from them long-stemmed glasses in that penthouse apartment. If somewhere in your alcoholism you felt completely separated and cut off from those around you, 
those that you loved very much. If you felt so unworthy that you could not even cry to whatever God there might be, you've been to your skid row too, just like me. Each of us has known his or her own hell. I was to spend 16 years in this place called hell. Not because I wanted to. I never met a man nor a lady on Skid Road that was there as a matter of choice. I was there because I was unwelcome in and unfit for any segment of society, high or low. I was not even welcome on Skid Row with the other winos because I was too unpredictable. This hate from time to time would just choke me and then I'd blow up. And I hurt people. And I honestly didn't want to. All I ever wanted was to be accepted and to belong somewhere to somebody. I was a traveling drunk. I, I was always going somewhere. Not exactly that either. I was always leaving somewhere. <laughs> For in those days, we didn't have treatment centers. I don't think alcoholism was defined anywhere as an illness or disease. Everybody had an opinion. So-called good people said, when they drank like you do, you're dirty. You're not fit to associate with us. And we were ostracized from decent society. Judges and law enforcement officers said, when they drank like you, you're a criminal. And I was tried on criminal charges. And I was put behind bars, and I was treated like a criminal. Psychiatrists and members of the medical profession said, when they drink like you, you're crazy. And I was committed to insane silence. And I was treated as though I were insane. Not that it's important, but I was to be locked up in jails. I've forgotten whether it's 294 or 295 times. And it doesn't matter. It was always for the same thing. And not that it's important, but I was to be in nine different insane asylums. Five of them more than once. There were 37 trips in all. Always for the same thing. But late in November 1950, I left the riverbank that night and came uptown to get me one more bottle of that wine and enough sleeping pills to make real sure I never had to live another 24 hours like that. Being shuffled from place to place and spit on and despised even by my kind. Because for 16 years my life had been sort of a pattern. I did the same thing over and over and over. I drank that wine and I went to jail and I got out and I drank that wine and I went to the nut house. 
Reminds me of a little story they tell back home about this little Salvation Army troop that was holding some type of service on the street corner one Saturday afternoon. They had a band of sorts. One fellow was tooting a horn, one was beating a drum. A lady was shaking a tambourine, another one was ringing a bell, and of course they had a preacher. And he'd preach a while and he'd pray a while play a while and he had the crowd pretty well worked up and he called on this little lady sister Sally to give her testimony <coughs> she got up to the microphone and she says I ain't never drank no whiskey ain't never smoked no cigarettes ain't never committed no adultery she said I ain't never done nothing except ring this damn bell For those 16 years, it was pretty much this way with me. I drank that damn wine, and I went to a lot of places I honestly didn't want to go. And I did a lot of things that I honestly didn't want to do. And a lot of things were done to me that I sure in hell didn't want done. But on this particular night, late in November 1950, I found myself late that night sitting on a dirty, lonely street corner in a place called Lynchburg, Virginia. This was the night that I reached a point beyond which something inside of me could not or would not go. Or as we say here, I hit bottom. Because that night, for the first time in my life, I took an honest look at this thing called Talbot Haygood. And I despised everything I saw because there was nothing to me except filth and absolute rottenness. I was 32 years old. Had at one time been a member of one of the ten wealthiest and most respected families in the state of Virginia. Had at one time had an opportunity that was really unlimited. I could have gone to any college or university anywhere in the world. I could have been set up first class in any business or profession I might have chosen. And I traded all of this for a bottle of wine. And all I had to show from my 32 years here that night was the clothes I had on my back, four pieces. Count them shoes separate. I had a 67-cent bottle of wine and enough sleeping pills to put everybody in here under. And that night I tried awfully hard to think of one human being I could call if I had a nickel to make a call and get anything on earth except trouble. But there was not another human being anywhere that cared whether I lived or died. And I didn't either. I tried to think of some place that I'd been before that I might go back to and be just a little bit welcome. But there was no such place. Because everywhere I'd ever been, there'd been trouble. Because I was there. That night, I ran completely out of people, places, and things. 
I've been saying for years, if people just leave me alone, I'll be all right. I realized that night people left me alone when I was seven years old, that first day in public school. But I wasn't all right. I was sick. And I was filthy inside and out. And I don't think I particularly wanted to die. It was just that I could no longer stand to live. There is a difference. And I know with that last drink of wine, I was going to take all of those pills. And I couldn't have been more than two drinks away from it, and I heard men's voices from somewhere in the distance coming towards me, and they were laughing. And I hated their guts because I hadn't laughed in a long, long time. And I drew up in a small knot by that light pole waiting for him to go by, and I knew they would because nobody stopped for me except the police. But that night a very strange and a very wonderful thing happened. Four men on the way home from an AA meeting not only stopped, but sat down on a cold, dirty street corner for more than two hours talking to a nothing about something called AA. Three of these men I knew by reputation. One was a member of Lynchburg City Council, a very wealthy man. One was an executive in one of the largest construction firms in that part of the country, a very wealthy man. One was half-owner in the largest independently-owned department store chain south of the Mason-Dixon line, a multimillionaire. I had absolutely nothing in common with these people. In fact, they represented something I hated with a passion, success, because I'd never tasted that. But the other one, he was one just like me. Oh, I know. His name was Ham Masters. Remember that name. If I have time, I may mention him again. I'd spent a lot of time with Ham on the riverbanks and in the jails and in the nut houses. Shared a many a bottle of cheap wine, a many a can of Solux with him. And when I recognized him, I offered him a drink and he looked at me and he smiled and he says, Talbot, through the grace of God, I haven't had a drink for three years. Hell, hadn't nobody been three years. I knew that. <laughs> Certainly not him, Masters, because like I said, he was one just like me. But what shook me really was those words through the grace of God. You see, Ham Masters was an atheist. In fact, the last time we'd been together was in the bullpen at the Norfolk, Virginia City Jail. Ham kept the whole jail awake all night, cursing God in language that you and I have seldom heard. And yet, here he is, saying out loud in front of people without any seemingly feeling of shame or embarrassment, through the grace of God, I haven't had a drink for three years. When that little meeting broke up, I went with Ham. 
He got me a room. Didn't even take my bottle away from me. Spent the night with me. And for all of the following week, there was somebody with me around the clock from AA. They didn't even let me go to the bathroom by myself. And the following Thursday night, they took me to my first AA meeting at the club room. And I was scared. Because I didn't know if I'd be accepted. I didn't think I was acceptable. I never had been before. I walked in on that club room, a group of people, about 35, maybe 40. And they were different. Because the men were clean shaved. They had on clean clothes. Two or three of them had on a necktie. One smart aleck had on a coat. I didn't own a coat. The ladies had the hair comb. Had on lipstick. Didn't look like God hit in the mouth with it. was on right. <laughs> and they were smiling. These were happy people, and I knew I didn't belong. And I was going to slip out. But before I could, a real pretty little lady from way over on the other side of the room got up and came all the way across that room to where I was. And she said, My name is Ruth Dickens. And I'm glad you made it tonight. And she shook hands with me. God, I don't know how long it had been since anybody had touched my hands except to put handcuffs on. And it wasn't one of them flabby, wishy-washy nothings. It was the kind of handshake that said, I know all about you, but I love you. And somehow I knew Ruth meant just exactly that. Within the first ten minutes, I shook hands with everybody in that room, and they were all just like Ruth. Somehow they knew all about me. But in spite of it, they loved me. This is what AA is all about. And I hope I never, as long as I live, forget again how I was treated at my very first AA meeting. It's the way every drunk, regardless of who or she might be or where they come from, should be treated every time they walk through the door of AA. I was treated like a gentleman. Never had been one. I was treated with respect. Never had felt any for anybody. Not even myself. I was treated with the utmost kindness. And I had never unselfishly in my entire life done a decent thing for anybody. I was subjected, I think, for the first time in my life to unselfish love of one human being for another. And I honestly didn't know what it meant because I'd never felt it from within or from without. I've got a long ways to go, so to make it as short as I can, I was to know 13 years of 
kind of lives that's impossible for a thing like me. I was no thirteen years of respect for other people. Thirteen years of respect of other people. Thirteen years of respect for myself. I was to know what it was like to belong anywhere I might happen to be. And I was invited to a lot of places and I never understood why. I still don't today and it frightens me. But late in 1962 I got hungry for material things. I had built up a good little public accounting and tax business and had built a fine reputation, really, as a tax consultant. And I can honestly say that up until that point, I had never done a dishonest tax return, not even my own. But as I say, I got hungry. I saw a chance to get well financially and to be able to spend the rest of my life doing nothing but visiting you at Hootenannies like this. I let the word out that I would do another kind of tax return. I deliberately in November 1962 turned my back on you and everything you stand for. I deliberately turned my back on God. A God that I had hated all of my life until you taught me what he was really like. And for five and a half months, I didn't go to an AA meeting. I didn't make a trust-step call because I didn't care enough. I didn't even take time for five and a half months to drink a cup of coffee with a sober AA friend because I was working for money for me. Now, not once during that five and a half months did I consciously think about taking a drink. By the same token, not once during that five and a half months did I consciously think about not taking a drink. But on April 15th, 1963, the last day of tax season, late that night when I dropped the last batch of tax returns in the mail, I was fixed for life. I had that morning taken in a young fellow and given him a half interest in the business. He was to do the work, I was to get half of the money. And I felt real good because for the first time in my life I had made something good happen to me. On the way home that night I had about 15 miles to go. I had to pass a bootlegging joint and God only knows how many times in 13 years I had done just that, passed it. That night I stopped. I went in, you thought I hadn't missed a night in 13 years. Nobody was surprised to see me. The bartender set a glass up and filled it. And then I remember consciously thinking, 
I'll take just one and I'll go straight home. That was April 15th. I got home sometime the last week in June. What I remember most was the feeling that I had when I swallowed that just one drink. I was dirtier. I was filthier. I was uglier than I'd ever been in my life. And I was more afraid than I'd ever been. Because I knew exactly where I was completely separated from both God and man. And the hate that I had felt before was nothing compared to the hate that I felt for just myself. I wanted sobriety at that moment, I think, more than I'd ever wanted it in my life because I knew what it was. I'd had some of it. Before, it was just a dream. But it was to be five hellishly long years before I was to know sobriety again. It was to become necessary for me to go all the way back to that place called hell and to walk its streets literally barefooted. It was to become necessary for me to go once more to the jails, to go once more to the insane asylums. In fact, the insane asylum was the first visit that I made. Sixteen months from the day I took that first drink. I was committed to a place called Eastern State Hospital at Williamsburg, Virginia. And I came to, I don't know how long after I was committed, and I was tied to another bed. I was in what they call the receiving section. I learned later that they don't ordinarily keep a patient there, but 24 hours. It was five days before they untied me. When I came to, I realized I was not in that room by myself. For locked up in there with me were five naked medical patients. And you and I can tell the difference, drunk or sober. The frightening thing is they can tell the difference. What happened during that next five days, I've never talked about and I never will. Except to say I think it's criminal to lock mentally deranged human beings in a room by themselves and leave them unattended to bite and to claw and to mutilate each other while they are watched through a people by some kind of people that think this is funny. I have some brand new scars on me as reminders of those five days. And I'm so glad I've got them. Because an egotist like me needs to be reminded. 
And any time now that I get the feeling that I'm something special, that I deserve special treatment that I shouldn't ever hurt again, I have only to look at these scars to be reminded all over again just exactly who I am and what I am and by whose grace I'm where I am. Forty-three days after I was committed, I escaped because I learned I was not there on alcoholic papers but on mental papers. And this, too, is exactly as it should have been. Because if you've had not 13 years or even 13 days, if you have had one 24 hours of everything you ever dreamed of, respect of your family, a feeling of complete peace within you, and you trade that for one drink of anything, you're crazy. There's no other way of putting it. You're crazy. <laughs> As I say, it was to take five years. But because the God you gave me in 1950 is not a God of condemnation, but a God of forgiveness. Not a God of hate, but a God of love. And because even on my meanest, drunkest day, this God has loved me. On July 24th, 1968, purely out of his love for me, he gave me once again the most precious thing an alcoholic ever dreamed of, the gift of sobriety. That's what it was like, and that's what happened. What's it like now? These past eight years have been really something. Shortly after finding sobriety in July 68, one night in October that same year, I went to a meeting in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I met that night one of the most beautiful creatures that God ever made. I moved to North Carolina not too many months after that. Jeannie and I dated for about a year. And on January 10th, 1970, we were married. And I was very much in love with Jeannie. Jeannie loved me. We learned not too long after we were married that she was not in love with me. There is a difference. But for six and a half years, although we never did really put a marriage together, there was something missing. We shared many, many things. 
Our loves for God is the way I understood Him. Our love for you. And our love for every one of those nine million or however many it is out there. And our love and our respect for each other. And not once did either one of us ever regret not separating. Life was real, real good. Not all that I wanted it to be, but I have never known what should be. I still don't. But last February, Jeannie went into the hospital, and we knew before she went that it was terminal. And we had talked ever since we'd been married about doing something together, and we'd never gotten around to it for some reason. Her first night in the hospital, she and I talked to God together out loud. A little hard at first because we were both a little shy and embarrassed. To say out loud exactly what we felt, but we both knew that when you talk to God, you don't tell it like it sounds pretty, you just tell it like it is. But in the months that followed, something very, very beautiful happened between Jeannie and me. Jeannie fell in love with me. And I felt resentment. A very kind lady, a very beautiful lady, explained to me last night a dictionary definition of the word resentment. Hurt feelings. When Jeannie fell in love with me, I realized it was too late for us to share all that a husband and wife could share. And I felt cheated. My feelings were hurt. But there's no resentments now. And no feelings of bitterness. For the last five and a half months that Jeannie and I spent were the happiest times we ever knew. And strangely enough, when we talked to God together, we didn't ask Him for anything. We just thanked Him for all that He'd given us. For all that He'd taken away. And for all that He had left us. And for letting us have one more sober day together in AA with you. And then, about 11 o'clock on the night of July 4th, just as she had lived, with all the grace and dignity of a great AA lady, she very quietly died. God, I cried that night. And there were tears of sadness. But you know, I wasn't sad for Jeannie. Because I knew she was all right. She and God had something going that was a beautiful thing to see, to share. She had the most beautiful conception of death that I ever heard. She said, it's going from this room into the next room. And I 
like that. Now the, the sad tears were for me. And there was a lot of fear there too. You see, I don't operate too well by myself. I never had a home until I, until I met and married Jeannie. I had never been responsible as a husband. I had to learn this. And with all the patience in the world, Jeannie taught me. And I knew fear that was... Well, the very thought of having to spend the rest of my life by myself is the most frightening thing that I've run into for a long, long time. And that's why I came out here so empty. And that's why I love you so very much for, for feeding me this weekend. I'm not afraid anymore. Something beautiful is about to happen in my life. And I'm real excited about it. I only hope I'll have the patience to let it happen and not try to manipulate and make it happen. And this is why that I need you more now than ever before. Because all of my life I was nothing until I met you. And then for a little while I was not something myself, but a part of something really beautiful. And then because I lost you, I was nothing for five more years. For a little better than eight years now, I've been a part of something very beautiful again. You have allowed me to become a part of your lives. You have given me a place in your hearts. And I want to stay in that place. Because there's happiness for me here. And safety from myself. And that's why tonight, like every night for the past eight years, before I go to sleep, I will thank God for my life and my sobriety. And I can't separate these two because without either one, I can't have the other. And I thank God for AA and for every one of you, especially for you. Because everything that I know that's worth knowing, I have learned from you. Everything that I have that's worth having has come to me simply as a result of my close association with you and with this beautiful God that you gave me. Everything that I am that I'm not ashamed of, I have become as a result of accepting without reservation the principles that you gave me and are teaching me to use in my life. And from trying so desperately to follow the example that you have set for me. 
Tonight I'll thank God for and for every one of you because I, I love you. Thank you so much for letting me be with you this weekend because I did need you and I always will. Thank you for letting me love you because I couldn't when I came here. Thank you just for being what you are, my family. God bless you. occasions that you have been with us, Talbot, I'm quite sure that you have become aware that Texans sometimes brag about the dimensions, the resources, and all of the things that this great state has. And on behalf of this roundup, annual roundup, I want to present you with a plaque. I can say I feel with a great deal of feeling that you have added not only to the size and the dimensions of this great state, but you've added tremendously and greatly to the dimensions of our lives. I was talking to Talbot just before the meeting started, and I told him I had asked God to kind of take care of me in this thing this morning so that I wouldn't mess it up, and he said, just be sure that you leave enough time for God to take care of me. <laughs> I might have dismissed him a little bit early. I don't know whether you noticed this or not, but I didn't introduce myself. My name is Shelby, and I am an alcoholic. <laughs> so I uh, apparently dismissed him a little early. I, I'm not blaming it on God. I'm taking blame all of my own. And because of God's help and because this program works and so many people have shared their experience, strength, and hope with me. I haven't had a drink one day at a time since April the 12th, 1950. It becomes my privilege, it became my privilege this morning to do something I don't know whether any of you will are capable of or will ever be capable of understanding. The emotions that I feel this morning where I stand... I was talking to Corky, and I told her I hope I wouldn't mess this thing up, and she said, I know that Marshall wouldn't want it to be modeling, and uh, I don't want it to become that way. I needed a Marshall in my life. I needed the one that I had and still have. You know, it seems uh, coincidental that Talbot should have mentioned Ralph Waldo Emerson. Because he so aptly described, I think, our friend Marshall when he wrote one time to laugh often and much. To earn the friendship of your fellow man and the affection of little children. 
to have the respect of honest critics and be able to endure the betrayal of false friends, to look for good in others and beauty in all things, to leave the world a better place if but for a garden spot, a healthy child, or a redeemed social condition, to know that one person breathes easier because you lived. This is success. And don't you know that wherever Marsha lives this morning, there's more laughter. There's more happiness than there has ever been before, just because of him. I know of no person that he didn't have the friendship of, and the affection of little children was synonymous with his presence in the midst of little children. My little children love Marshall so much. And he wasn't afraid of criticism. Marshall was much like I am. I don't mind criticism. They have a right to their opinion, even if it's wrong. <laughs> if Marshall ever experienced the betrayal of a false friend, I know exactly what he did. He prayed for him. I know that. I've ridden many miles with Marshall, and we've talked about the beauty of all things, up and down the roads, you know, through Ballinger. Even Ballinger, we saw beauty. Yeah. And the good in others. I heard him say about a guy one time, he said, well, boy, he sure can whistle. You know, he looked for good. You know, he looked for good in others. <laughs> and a garden spot, gee, those delicious tomatoes that I ate out of that wonderful garden spot down there by the Colorado City Lake that he and Seal toiled and enjoyed so much. A healthy child, and gosh how healthy they are. Beautiful ladies, beautiful ladies. And a redeemed social condition? Boy, is it ever! Yeah. <laughs> And how many of us have breathed so much easier because he lived? I have another plaque. And it really is so little and a sense and yet as it says and lovingly dedicated to the memory of how could it be any greater than our love for Marshall at this time I'd like to present Seal Seal honey would you come up please <laughs>